December 30th, 1972 brought forth clear skies and a black canvas with white specks glinting. Ventura Masiris was enjoying what the night had to offer. He was listening to his transistor radio at 10.20 p.m., just outside the small wooden hut that he lived in. Most nights, the 72-year-old worked as a night watchman, but on this, one of his few days off, he was relaxing. That is, until the station cut out, replaced with a blanket of static, sharp to the ears. He smacked the radio twice, hoping to regain the signal, but to no avail. After he shut it off, though, things became a lot stranger. The static was replaced with the sound of angry bees. Above him, a stationary light hovered near a group of eucalyptus trees. It was glowing a brilliant orange that changed to purple, and in the center of the object, he could see a viewing window and two humanoid figures looking down at him. They wore strange gray colored diving suits that were puffy. It gave them a Michelin man-like appearance from head to toe. The beings wore helmets, too, that were joined in the back by a pair of tubes. Two pairs of slanting eyes stared intently at the night watchman. Their mouths were nothing but slits to Ventura. He could see everything unfolding before him, until he couldn't. Unexpectedly, he was hit with a blinding white light that shot out from underneath the hovering craft. Moments before he could see these beings turning dials and pulling levers. You know, spaceship stuff. The angry humming noise increased in pitch, and the craft moved off slowly toward the northeast, behind the trees over a low hill. Immediately following the encounter, Ventura felt a tingling sensation in his legs. As the days passed by and turned into weeks, he suffered from headaches, violent nausea, and diarrhea. His hair fell out in chunks at a time, and he developed swollen red pustules on the back of his neck. He had difficulty speaking, and his eyes watered constantly. For all intents and purposes, it's as if Ventura was exposed to a dose of radiation. Funnily enough, two months following his encounter with the craft, he started to grow a new set of teeth. There was also physical evidence in the case to back up Ventura's claims. The tops of the eucalyptus trees had marks indicating that they had been scorched and burned by some great source of heat. The case generated so much attention he was interviewed by 60 people from all walks of life. Journalists, doctors, engineers, police officers, etc. UFO investigator Pedro Romanuk, along with everyone else he talked to, confirmed that two front teeth and two cheek teeth were actually coming in. Ventura Masiris had a second encounter with these beings and even had telepathic conversations with one of them. His name was Arnoil, and he came from a planet called Prunio. In a book shown to Ventura, there were depictions of surgical procedures. They also told him that cancer was a virus that could be cured. UFO literature is littered with cases like these, and this one is from Mars in her classroom. On the back roads of Brazoria County in Texas, it was September 3rd, 1965, 
Deputy Sheriff William E. McCoy and Patrol Deputy Robert Good were driving along Highway 36 when a rather large UFO flew over top of them. It was about the size of a football field, triangular in shape, and gave off blue and purple light. It flashed a brilliant beam of purple light down onto the Brazoria County Cruiser, and Good, who had sustained an injury to his index finger from a pet alligator, found it healed within a couple minutes. In Episode 3, I presented the story of a Brazilian girl who had miraculously been cured of cancer by a small group of humanoid beings that exited a UFO. Perhaps the most incredible case of a UFO healing comes to us from the south of France. The curious case of Dr. X and the kindly light that would have an impact on his life forever. My name is Rob Christofferson, and this is episode 16 of the Our Strange Guys podcast. The south of France is one of the most unique and beautiful places on earth. Mere kilometers from the French Alps and the Pyrenees are the Atlantic and Mediterranean. You could find fields of lavender and world-renowned vineyards. It's also a place where mountains lead to the sea. In a small valley in the southeast of France, surrounded by lush green fields, small farms and old white houses, Dr. Rex, a prestigious physician, lived with his wife and 14-month-old child. Dr. X was born in 1930 and earned his doctorate, we're told, in one of the fields of biology. We know very little of this French physician, but according to UFO researcher Amy Michel, he is a sensitive and introverted person with perfect eyesight. He's discreet and intellectually active. The good doctor served in the Algerian War in the late 50s. His time in the military would be short, however. On May 13, 1958, while on patrol, he stepped on a landmine that put him in a coma for 24 hours and caused a subdural hematoma on his right leg, as well as muscle problems. It was painful for him to walk or even stand after months of therapy. The explosion also affected his right hand, which made it impossible for him to play the piano, which he was rather proficient with. On October 29th of 1968, the good doctor was chopping wood outside his home. An unfortunate slip sent the blade of the axe into his left tibia. The wound looked rather superficial, but deep down it had broken a vein which caused a rather large hematoma to form in that leg. His leg swelled up almost immediately, causing him intense pain before he completely blacked out. 
He was prescribed a number of medications and was sent home to rest for four days. The pain in his leg made it difficult to move around, and the swelling would go down eventually, but not before traveling down the entire length of his leg to his foot. In the early morning hours of November 2, 1968, Dr. X awoke to the calls of his 14-month-old son. For a child his age, he slept in short, small bursts and often woke up asking to be fed. This morning, as Dr. X entered the room adjacent to his own, the child was standing in his crib, pointing to a set of shutters that were closed. Through the slats, a series of flashes could be seen, and the young boy would exclaim, Row! Row! with excitement. According to Dr. X, this is a word the baby used to describe anything that shined. During one of Amy Michelle's visits, he heard the young child make the same sounds when pointing to the fire in the hearth. The doctor was focusing on how much pain he was in as he moved from room to room. He took the child's empty bottle and filled it up in the bathroom. This calmed the child down, and soon he drifted back to sleep. The wind crashed against the house, and the rain touched everything. The doctor could hear that one of the shutters came loose. It loudly banged against the house, and Dr. X moved from room to room, trying to find out which one it was. He was forced to climb the stairs to the second floor gallery in the small room that sat adjacent. A loose shutter, just as he had suspected. But as he opened the window to reach for it, he noticed that the valley lit up once every second or so. There was no thunder, just the wind, the rain, and an illumination with the intensity of a full moon. The flashes seemed to indicate that they were coming from somewhere behind the house. Dr. X ignored the pain and made his way back downstairs, looking through the living room and the kitchen windows. He poured himself a glass of water and finished it. The clock read 3.55 a.m., and the question still lingered. What was the cause of the flashes? He moved to the living room again and opened a pair of French doors that led to a terrace. Far off to his right, a pair of luminous objects hovered over the valley. They were almost cigar-shaped from this angle, but their construction consisted of two portions. The top half of the object nearly resembled the top itself. An antenna, wide at the base, reached into the air. It met a flat surface as white as the light it cast, and as bright as the moon on a full night. This top portion met a rounded portion bottom of deep red, the color of sunset. There were antennae on each side of the two objects, just before the top portion met the bottom red. There will be drawings of the crafts included in the source material in the show notes, and we will also post them to our social media accounts. Each of these crafts shot a beam of bright white light down to the ground, and intermittently, each second, a flash of light would pass between the objects as well, from the center of each of them. 
The way the objects flashed made Dr. X believe that they were sucking in atmospheric electricity that the two objects would share between each other. All was silent in the valley, and the objects moved from east to west in a great sweeping motion, turning north toward the doctor. As they moved in his direction, they slowly started growing larger and drifted closer to each other. The beams they projected to the ground joined together, and when the two objects finally touched, the flashing stopped completely. One large spotlight illuminated the ground as the two objects began to merge into a larger one, identical to the previous two. The singular craft was fixed on the doctor and started moving toward him. Its bright white spotlight illuminated the roofs of the nearby houses. On the bright red bottom portion, he could discern multiple sections separated by lines. In between them, dark horizontal lines that ran from top to bottom. He compared them to the lines on an old TV when it's adjusted from one station to the next. The object's movements were slow and deliberate. Think of the shark in Jaws 3 as it slowly makes its way toward the observation window in the theme park. It all seemed effortless as the object came close and hovered in front of the doctor. He wasn't thinking about the pain in his legs. He wanted to call for his wife. He wanted to grab his camera, which was loaded with film, but he couldn't move. This was not some compelling force that kept his feet planted to the ground. Rather, it was a curiosity, and a concern that the craft would leave if he did. Later, when he recounted this moment under hypnosis, the doctor trembled, sweat running from his pores. On one occasion, he actually vomited. All at once, the object tilted back, revealing its central light, casting it against the house and the doctor. For just a few seconds, he was bathed in light until a loud bang was heard and the object before him completely dematerialized. It was replaced with a wispy white cloud that blew away to the west. Dr. X was all at once jolted from awe into a state of nervousness. The clock on the wall read 4.05 now. He raced furiously to record what he had seen for fear of losing it all, as if the memories themselves were delicate. In his excited state, he woke his wife to tell her everything. She noticed immediately that he wasn't walking with a limp and pointed to his leg. In his excitement, the doctor failed to notice that the pain in his legs was gone. The wound that he had sustained a few days previously was all but healed. Only a faint scar remained. UFO researcher Amy Michelle noted the scar when he visited a few days later. The couple discussed the incident for half an hour before turning in again for the night. Ten minutes into his new slumber, Dr. X's wife heard him talk in his sleep, something he had never done before. One phrase that stuck out to her was this. Contact will be reestablished by falling down the stairs on November 2nd. 
the good doctor slept until two in the afternoon, and when his wife asked how he slept, he replied that it had been very well. She suggested that he should write to Amy Michelle about the night's events, and to this the doctor looked at her dumbfounded. He had no clue what she was talking about, but when she presented him with the drawings he had made following the UFO encounter, he looked at them with alarm. He recognized his own handwriting, but couldn't remember ever making the notes. Later that day, Dr. X did fall down. Fell down the living room stairs. He stated that it felt like he had a hook in his leg. But in the fall, he knocked his head on the floor. That was when it all started flooding back to him. All the memories of the incident the night before were there in his head. The days that followed brought with them unique anxieties. The miraculous healing was a troublesome event that only made him ill. He lost weight. His features were drawn and weary. On November 8, he started to experience cramping in the stomach region, which persisted until the 18th when his navel began to mysteriously itch. He felt a prickling sensation, and upon lifting his shirt, a perfectly formed isosceles triangle was beginning to take shape on his navel. All of the itching and irritation went away as the pigmentation became darker and darker. The good doctor went to a dermatologist, but ultimately could find no explanation for the skin irritation. The strange mark was preceded by a dream in which a triangle appeared to Dr. X, which he associated with the November 2nd incident. Amy Michelle suggested it must be psychosomatic, but the theory was discarded when a similar mark appeared on the young son. For the next two years, the mark would routinely disappear and reappear every three weeks, and appeared on the young boy a half a day later. On November 1st, 1969, Dr. X rang in the anniversary of the UFO encounter with Amy and Michelle and his wife at his homestead. Michelle jokingly asked if there was any geometry on his stomach, to which the doctor denied and even lifted up his shirt to prove it. It was just the two couples. Dr. X's young son was staying with his grandparents for a couple of days, approximately 60 kilometers away. I like to think that these four people were honoring the event like most people would the new year. Maybe they believe the object would return and show itself to them. In many ways, UFOs are like a system of language. Each individual witness speaks a specific dialect relating to their sighting. The ways in which witnesses describe their UFO, its movements, its lights, its effects on the observer, is all dialect. At 11 p.m. that night, Amy Michelle requested the doctor play some music. Now, Dr. X was fluent on the piano. In fact, we're told, often, throughout the two articles that Amy Michelle wrote on the case, that he was at a professional level. Since the healing had taken place, Dr. X had taken to playing the piano again. While he was in the middle of a song, he stopped, uttered something under his breath, 
stood up from the bench and unbuttoned his shirt to reveal that the triangle was taking shape again. It always seemed to resemble a mild sunburn. The next morning, someone had the idea to call Dr. X's parents to see if the mark had appeared on their child, too. The grandmother was distraught and was just about to phone the doctor herself because there, on his navel, was a triangular-shaped red mark. Following the encounter, the child suffered from insomnia so badly he had to see a specialist. He would also remark to his parents and even his school teachers that one day he would, quote, go away in the big red machine. It's easy to assume that he must have overheard his parents talking about the UFO encounter, or perhaps he overheard it from someone else, but according to the parents, this is not the case. A number of anomalous incidents would occur in the house following the November 2nd encounter, and would even extend to people outside the house as well. In late December of 1968, Amy Michelle recounted how he became obsessed with a theme composed by Franz Liszt. For a week he dreamt of the theme, and during the day would whistle it repeatedly to his wife's annoyance. It was during this time that Dr. X was undergoing hypnosis to discover more details about the November 2nd incident. After one particular grueling session, Michelle suggested that the doctor play some music to alleviate the tension. And when he did, Michel recognized the first few notes instantly, as those he had been obsessing over all week. On another occasion, Michel remarked how after a short conversation on the phone with the doctor, his wife came into the room and told him that the doctor had been the one who had called. We're assured that he doesn't call often, but a thought in her head made it clear that it was the good doctor he had spoken to. There were other anomalous events that took place, too. Some objects would be moved about the home. On a number of occasions, a mechanical clock would fall three hours behind inexplicably. They also experienced strange electrical problems on a couple of occasions. During one such incident, they lost current in their home, despite finding nothing wrong with their electrical box. On another occasion... A breaker tripped, but somehow the appropriate outlets still had power. It freaked out the French Electricity Authority so much that they suggested the couple move, claiming these events to be the cause of witchcraft. Dr. X claimed that on a number of occasions, he was able to levitate in the air. This would usually occur when he was alone and lying down flat. He would often float up gently and during one event was able to grab a piece of flypaper and stick it to the ceiling, which was approximately 20 feet in the air. He would then come back down as gently as he had gone up. Perhaps the most significant change occurred to both Dr. X and his wife. They became deeply spiritual people, and despite the traumatic nature of the incident, they were both able to discover a newfound love for life and an inner peace. It's not entirely clear what happened to Dr. X in the following years. He has continued to remain anonymous, and if he is still alive, 
will be turning 90 this year. The hard evidence in this case, the anomalous events, the levitation, and such don't exactly provide proof of the good doctor's claims, but there are elements to this case that are hard to ignore. The triangular mark he shared with his son, and the inexplicable healing of chronic injuries. These are the hallmarks that make this case enduring, even if it's not entirely well known in the annals of ufology. Ultimately, what convinces me of the case's authenticity is how the doctor struggles with his own authenticity himself. In the articles, the fact that Dr. X can't ultimately prove his case frustrates him endlessly. In one instance, it makes him incredibly emotional. Combined with the fact that he wouldn't jeopardize his practice by revealing his name lends a lot of credence to this case. What most cases fail to reveal to us, for fear of invasiveness, is how the witness is affected over time. It's incredibly invasive to live under a microscope, but ultimately, I can't help but wonder what has happened to the experiencers in the following years of their encounters. I hope they're doing okay. This episode was written and recorded by me, with research from Isabel Hamilton. Thank you so much for listening. Our big book giveaway is now over. And our winner is Nick Casale. Thank you all for entering and all the kind reviews. I appreciate it so much. Nick, I'll have your books to you in the mail real soon, man. As always, if you want links to our show notes, social media profiles, and other fun stuff, head on over to OurStrangeSkies.com. And if you want to support the show monetarily, Patreon.com slash OurStrangeSkies to find out more information about bonus content and early releases. I know I haven't been able to post a lot of bonus content lately, but it's coming, y'all. We got a meltdown coming down the line, and uh, I got a couple of cool short cases for you. One final announcement before we get out of here. I'm going to be taking the month of March off to recharge my batteries. Um, It's been a rough couple weeks, and I wanted to give myself time to get my shit together and to prep some new content, so we will be taking the month of March off. But I am appearing on a gaggle of podcasts in March, most of which I've already recorded uh, with the various podcasters, but... I made a special list for the guys over at the 10-ish podcast, and that episode will be out on March 4th, I believe, is what they told me. I also have appearances coming up on Based on a True Story, where we talk about the first season of Project Blue Book. Uh, Maxwell's podcast, Relic, which is a great podcast. We talked about the ancient astronaut theory. And Chris Williamson's new podcast, Me and My Friends. We haven't recorded that yet, but... Uh, We will be recording it later this month, and it should be out, I believe, in late March. I'll be tweeting out links to all of these appearances on my social media accounts when they are posted. Our theme song was composed by Big Cats, with additional music from Blue Dot Sessions, and our logo and web design is by the great Desdemona. 
And finally, don't forget to look up, because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies, or in a valley in the south of France. In Grey We Trust.